Si Helm told me he'd go get my Bible for me that I'd left in the office. If I'd remind people that he didn't do this training single-handedly, he had a lot of good lay people helping him, and I'm more than happy to accommodate. You know, when, you, when a preacher leaves his Bible in the office, you realize he, his retirement's not any too soon. I mean, <laughs> getting out just in time. I've I've noticed some things lately. I, I've, I've begun crying at weddings. And I used to think just the women cried at weddings. Now I'm, I cry at weddings. And I, I cry at baptisms. And uh, once in a while I cry about one of my sermons. So uh, I do, do a lot more crying than I used to do. Uh, maybe uh, that's not all bad, but I, I think the timing is just about right here. Um, for the next, uh, beginning today, I want to do a series on Parroting 2001. And uh, I, I want to talk about um, parroting from the biblical perspective. And I'm I, asking for your prayers and, and your support, and if you could uh, get your family members here. And as I go into this, I'm well aware that the whole definition of families has changed and is changing. Uh, a lot of children are being reared by uh, grandparents, aunts and uncles, single parents, and spiritually single parents. So you have any number of combinations of parenting. That's why I've called it parenting. Whatever the relationship, I, I think we can call it uh, this and, and know that we cover all of those uh, definitions. It's been my joy on several occasions to go to the city of Edinburgh, Scotland. I almost, um, I had, well, I had a chance to go and study under Jimmy Stewart there in that city, a wonderful teacher of homiletics, but it was not the right time in our family, so we didn't take advantage. But I bought a hat there one time in Edinburgh, and it's my favorite hat, and I have a huge collection of hats. It's my all-time favorite. I remember once going up to Edinburgh Castle and almost freezing to death. You want to pick your day when you climb that hill because the wind is fierce. But one of the things I most remember about Edinburgh is its, its uh, motto. The motto of the city is, unless uh, the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Have you ever seen that motto? I'll bet it's on uh, more cities than Edinburgh, and I know it's on a multitude of foundation stones on churches and church buildings all over the earth, unless the Lord builds the house. And when you read this little short uh, 121st Psalm that begins with that statement, you begin to think this is a psalm that's divided into two parts. Starts out talking about building houses, building a city, and then um, it talks about uh, children as being a heritage from God, as valuable to a parent as, war as arrows to a warrior. And in those days, when that was the only instrument of defending oneself, that's pretty valuable, as valuable as, as arrows to a warrior, and, and, and therefore you won't be put to shame if you have lots of them. Now, you say, well, it's a two-pronged psalm. And I want to raise the question, is it? Because 
there's a Hebrew pun here. If you look at the Hebrew word that means to build or builder and the Hebrew word for son, you will see that they are very, very similar. The, the letters are almost identical. Now, as Wesleyans, we believe that many times in order to interpret Scripture, you have to use other Scriptures. Scripture interprets Scripture. So when we, when we aren't sure that it can be read this way, we go to more Scripture. And in this case, let's go to 2 Samuel, to that scene in 2 Samuel when David has subdued his enemies with the Lord's help. Jerusalem is at peace. The king is settled. And he wakes up one morning and his conscience has smitten him. His conscience is bothering him because David lives in a wonderful home, a house of cedar. That was the best in those days. And he said to Nathan the prophet, I live in a house of cedar and the Lord's ark is in a tent. And I don't feel right if I have something the Lord's house doesn't have. I want to put that right. I want to build the Lord's house to be just as good and better than the king's house. And of course, uh, Nathan was proud of him and commended him that he had that in his heart. And then the Lord began to speak to Nathan, and Nathan came back to David and commended him that he had it in his heart to build the Lord's house. But then Nathan said this, God said, tell you that I, the Lord, will build you a house. I will build you a house that will endure so that finally when your days are fulfilled and you lie down to sleep with your fathers and your mothers, I will raise up for you offspring from your house. And hasn't God kept that promise to David? Now we have an offspring of David sitting on the throne who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and forever. So what is, what is God saying to David? I will build you a house, not a house of brick and mortar, not a house of cedar. I will build you a family. So go back and read the second half of that Hebrew pun. And what is the Lord saying when he declares, except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain who build it. Now let's look at it a little different. We can, many people can beget children. Most people are biologically, during the childbearing years, biologically able to, to beget children. Many times the children can be cantankerous, even rebellious, uh, quarrelsome. Sometimes tension and fear and mistrust can fill the, the, the family, the, the house. We can beget children, but what this scripture is teaching us here, and it's really one psalm, not two, is that we can only build a family with the Lord's help. What happens in a good old American tradition when we beget children and things aren't going right? And, and we say, well, they're falling apart. This is not at all the way I dreamed it would be. Well, in our fine um, uh, can-do spirit, we just work harder. 
And what does the Bible say? In vain you eat the bread of anxious toil. You can work harder and harder. You can work day and night, but you will not accomplish a loving, trusting family in your own work. It will not happen. Because he gives his beloved sleep. He gives his beloved peace. A peaceful home is the gift of God. Not the accomplishment of these hands or of working harder or finding some theory that might work for us, though many theories are useful. This scripture brings us to the realization and recognition that the kind of home we want, that peaceful, fulfilling home, is the work of God, a gift of God, if you will. So let's see the first part of that psalm is making that basic declaration. And now let's see how he spells it out as he goes on to say in the Revised Standard Version, Lo, children are a heritage from the Lord. Now, heritage is something handed down. Children are handed down from the Lord. Now, that, that's a pretty good statement, isn't it? I, I like that word, low. It really uh, gets your attention. That several times in the Bible, that, uh, the, a sentence is preceded with low. Uh, I, I remember the story, it's an old story, about the Christian who was afraid to fly. And uh, her friends were giving her a hard time. They said, well, well you're, you, you know the Lord's with you. Why, why are you afraid to get on an airplane? And she said, I know the Lord is with me, but the Bible says, Lo, I am with you always. <laughs> you remember that story. Well, here, here is that word, Lo, again. And, and what does it mean? It, it means, listen up. I'm about to tell you something really, really important. Listen. I, this is important. And so once he gets their attention, he says, Children are handed down from the Lord. Now, friends, there is nothing more basic than that. That, that concept undergirds everything I'm going to be trying to say for these six weeks. Children, first of all, have to understand, must understand where they come from. Where they come from. And many times, our, our young people get into trouble because people say they have low self-esteem. And they, and they look for self-esteem in all the wrong places. Now, we're also interested, very interested in self-worth. How, how does one ever come to a position of self-worth unless one recognizes from the beginning where one comes from? One is handed down from the Lord. Children are a heritage from the Lord. We have a divine origin. Oh, I know we have lots of theories, but none of them reaches the mark. I, I go out to our museum. When our grandchildren come, they want to see the dinosaur. We go out to the museum. I like to go to the energy display. I'm interested in these things. And I read that 15 billion years ago, give or take a billion here or there, 15 billion years ago, some kind of, um, of, of, of thermal radiation blast occurred and, and produced the elements which, which combined to create our universe. 
I'm interested in that because I don't know how old the world is. And secondly, I don't know how uh, God created the world. So I'm, I'm interested in all of that. But I'm, my friends, if all we can share with our children is that you are a cosmic accident. You, you came into being and we can't even tell you where the stuff of the explosion came from. I am an accident, you're an accident, and all our children are accidents, then no wonder we have a huge problem with self-worth in this country. No wonder. What, what kind of consolation does it give a child to say, you were an accident? There happened to be a bang one day, and nobody knows who's caused the bang or who created the elements. Nobody talks about where the stuff of the bang came from. It just happened. Or, take it a notch better than that, the Soviet Union that went down. We had a chance, some of us, to visit with Gorbachev in, um, when we were in Russia in 1990, 91, somewhere one of those years. And we were asking him about his view of humankind. And as an atheist, he said, I, I see people as the highest expression of nature. Highest expression of nature. And I thought about grass clippings, you know, just the, just the tops maybe, the highest expression of nature. And I, and I thought, as I reflected on that, is, is that why Stalin is reported by many to have, to have been responsible for the death of 20 million people? Hitler isn't the world's bad boy, as grotesque as the, that which he did. Stalin, far, far more than that. And, and being, just being the highest expression of nature or being a cosmic accident, friends, that, that doesn't do us justice. What does us justice? We're created in the image of God, in the likeness of God. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. That's the only mark. That's the only basis for a happy and fulfilled child. That's where we start. We start there. We remind them of where they came from. Eve got a lot of things wrong. And we talk about the mother of all living, which is the meaning of her name. We talk about Eve as the one who not only succumbed to temptation, but brought her husband along. He was pretty easy to bring, if you ask me. But Eve, when she had her first baby, Eve said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. With the help of the Lord. She recognized something a lot of people still haven't gotten it. That this is a creative process whereby we share with God in the bringing of life into the world. That, that, that God is the big player in this. Jeremiah got it. Jeremiah said, before I was conceived in my mother's womb, the Lord had selected me to be a prophet to the nations. Before he was ever conceived, he was in the mind of God who had a plan and a purpose and, and a direction for his life. Psalm 139 gets it. Our, our, while we were in our mother's womb, the Spirit of God was knitting us together. I tell you, if we don't get that basic lesson across to our children, they'll never believe they're precious. Secondly, they're, not only are they a gift, they are handed down from God, but you and I must accept the gift. That makes sense, doesn't it? 
I mean, what, what graceful person would ever say to someone who presented them a gift, I don't like that stupid thing, take it back. I mean, that, that's not the way loving, mannerly people behave. We, we accept the gift. And yet I, I know people who struggle to accept the gift of their child because they had something else in mind, please, and, and they wanted a different kind of child. I remember when our, our son was getting up uh, fifth grade or sixth, and I very much wanted him to play football. Now, I've, I've always loved football. I played four years in high school. I still am, am amazed that I wasn't picked up by the scouts for some major college. I, I, was, I was one of the toughest linebackers you have ever seen in your life. And uh, nobody invited me to come and try out. It, it, it might have been that I had two things against me. I was small and slow. And you put those two S's together and, and you don't do very well in football. But, but I, I'm thinking, boy, my, my boy, he's, he's taller than I. He's, he's going to fill out. I, I get him on a weight program. He's faster than I am. And he's, surely he's going to play football. I mean, only one son here. So, Sure enough, I get him over there, get him in his pads, and he's, he's going to play football for his dad. And I gave him a little caveat. I, I could sense a little reluctance. And I said, now, son, if, if, if you ever feel like it's hurting you and you're scared, you don't have to play. You can just tell me. Well, three days later, he came home and he said, Dad, it hurt me and I'm scared. <laughs> And I called the coach and said, that's the end. Where did I take the pads? I mean, it, it was over. And, and uh, he, he was not born with that kind of physique and that kind of, of, of desire. And, and um, our, our task as parents is to help our children discover the reason why they were born. That is a huge task for parents. And we start by accepting the gift, not imposing on them uh, and trying to make them the person we want them to be. Not everyone's going to be a brilliant scientist. Not all are going to be ballerinas. Not all are going to be macho men who, who want to play football or whatever. They, they, they come as a unique person with, with a contribution to make to the kingdom of God, uh, with a unique giftedness that is all their own. And you and I have to accept the gift. Now, I've, I've teased my wife about this, and, and as you went with me through the years of having one grandchild and another and another, you remember that um, my wife Jean was always there. She would go early as the due date was coming, and then I would get there the afternoon the baby was born or the day after. And always it was the same. When I came into the hospital room, Nana had this new baby all wrapped up, holding this baby, talking uh, constantly right into the face of this child. And, and as I come into the room, she has tears in her eyes, and she looks up at me and she said, Oh, ah, Daddy, this one's a keeper. This one's a keeper. And, and it got to be kind of funny, you know. It was, all of them were keepers. We got 13 keepers. <clears throat> she never said, We're going to throw this one back. <clears throat> this one's not at all what we had in mind. Now we're just waiting to see all, all the persons that they become, and they're, they're so different. <clears throat> they're all so unique. 
So I tell you, accepting the gift is so important. We, we have learned that if a child early on does not uh, hear and see in your eyes and feel in your touch and in the tone of your voice that they are the answer to your dreams, that they are the fulfillment of all you hoped for, all you wanted, all you'd prayed for, if early, early on in their lives they don't feel that, they spend the rest of their lives trying to find it. So I beg you, recognize your child as a gift. And then secondly, for heaven's sake, accept the gift fully and joyfully and with a heart full of thanksgiving. Tell them they're precious. Find a new way every day to tell them they're precious. Precious to God and precious to you. When our grandson Will lived here in the city, and I've told this story, I think, three times, but it's so good I'm going to tell it again. <laughs> grandson Will lived here. He would come over to our playroom, built specially for grandchildren, and all those toys neatly on shelves. It'd take about 30 seconds to get them strewn all over the floor. Looked like a disaster. He would come in. He was maybe four years old, and the minute he walked in, my wife, who's the best positive reinforcement person in the world, would start on that little boy. Why, you are the cutest. You are the best looking. You are the finest. You are the smartest. You, you are so precious. And on and on and on. I never grew up with that kind of stuff. You know, I just stand there and marvel at her doing that. And every time she's doing that, and I'm thinking to myself, he's throwing those toys. He doesn't hear a thing. And one, one, one day he came in and she starts the same thing. You are so smart. You are such a fine little boy. You are so Splendid, and all, and then she stopped, and he looked up and said, "And precious." <laughs> he had memorized every word, and she left one of them out. And I, and I, I, I realized in that moment more than ever before how important it is that they know they're precious. They know it from their parents. They know it from their siblings. You know, I'm not a great believer in rules. I think we need some rules, and they ought to be firm, but, but we, we just sometimes overload our children with rules, and, and they don't stand a chance of pleasing us. But we had a few at our place, and one of those rules was you never put one another down. You never do that. The Bible says we build each other up, and, and the world's going to put you down. Don't worry about that. You're going to get beat into nubbins in the world. But in this house, you will never call each other names or put one another down. It's a part of the whole process of making sure they know they're precious. And then show them they're precious. I wish I had an hour and a half to talk to you about. How do, it's not enough to tell them. You have to show them they're how do you show them they're precious? You're there for them at all the crucial moments in their lives. I had something coming. First time one of ours stood on the stage, she had been selected as Little Red Riding Hood. She just walked out on the stage. That was her part. I tell you what, we had to get the whole family. People drove 150 miles to get there to see that. And you bet they better be there. I'd have been upset. If the bishop had called me and said, you have a meeting that day, I'd have been in trouble. Because I had to be there to see Little Red Riding Hood walk out on that stage. 
The one thing your children are going to remember when they grow up and they leave home is, did Daddy and were they there for me? At crucial moments in my life, did they listen to me? Oh, that's so important. Did they listen to me? You know, when you listen to a, to a child, you enter into that child's world and see things from their perspective. Did you know that may, many of our children, if not the majority, get into drugs and things like that because they didn't have anybody to listen to them? Nobody to really enter into their world and share with them what was going on? I remember a letter to Ann Landers that was written, oh, eight, ten years ago. Uh, a child molester wrote. He hated himself for what he had done to two children. But he wrote, he wrote a letter to their parents through Ann Landers. He said, I know you're wondering how I got close enough to your children to molest them. He said, I just want to write you and tell you it's because you were too busy or too tired to listen to them. Now, the next time your child wants to tell you something and you're too tired or too busy to listen, I want you to ask yourself this question. If you won't listen, who will? Who will listen? We can't just tell them they're precious. We have to show them they're precious. And didn't you like that story on the front page of our local paper, The Chronicle? The fifth, the fifth grader, the little 10-year-old boy who was in the contest uh, being run by, offered by a law firm here in town about uh, who is your hero and how does he keep Martin Luther King dream alive? I love that story. I'm glad it was on the front page. This 10-year-old, Jonathan Howard, I believe his name, Jonathan said, my dad is not famous. My daddy doesn't endorse Nike shoes or anything like that. My hero is my dad. And let me tell you about my dad. He helps me with the homework. He plays with me in the backyard. Sometimes he just hangs out with me. My dad is my hero. Isn't it wonderful to know that in our country there are still those who recognize true heroes? Not just how far can you hit a little ball with a stick, or not how far can you throw a ball, or how, far, how many times can you throw it through a hoop, but the real... Thank you so much. Now our closing hymn is Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. It's all about family, the family of God, and as well as our own individual families. This would be a wonderful time for somebody to unite with the family. If you are here...